Several years ago, I gave a lesson which, I, which was inspired by a, a student's t-shirt. I was walking down the hallway uh, at school one day and I saw the, the back of a girl's shirt that said, Be Last. And I tried to catch up to her to, to, her to see what, what else it said, but I, I never did. So I, I Googled it to see what it might mean. And, and in the process, I found a, a little book that became the outline of, of a sermon. It was a study of Jesus' teaching in Mark 9 and 35, where he said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. You probably don't remember that story. And in fact, you probably don't remember that sermon, which means maybe I need to dig it back up and, and rerun it. But, uh, but the reason that I bring it up is that today's lesson was also inspired by a student's t-shirt. A few weeks ago, uh, before class began, I noticed in the back of the room a, a girl's shirt, like the one that's pictured in the slide here, and it had in big bold letters the phrase, which we're going to use as the title of our study today, but God. I have to admit, I, I kind of did a, a double take because I wasn't sure that's what it said at first. In fact, uh, as I was handing out some papers later during class, uh, I took a closer look. And, and in hindsight, that was probably a little creepy for her. But, um, <laughs> but I told her that I liked her shirt and I asked her where she got it. And I bought Tara one for her birthday. Um, all around the, the big, bold, but God, as you can see, uh, message here are words that describe the, the troubles and the cares that mankind deals with in this life. Fear, anxiety, doubt, sin, guilt, burdens, hurt, anger, regret, grief, loss, shame, pain. And many of these things we bring on ourselves, of course. Some of them are hurled at us by Satan. But the message of the shirt is that God has an answer for all of them. In fact, God is the answer for all of our cares and troubles. Yes, these things make life hard, but God can make it all right. Well, as I said, I bought Tara one of those shirts because I thought the message was, was so inspiring. But, but I also Googled this phrase to see what else I could find. And I was surprised to find that this phrase is found numerous times throughout the Bible. Over and over, God's Word describes scenes or situations where men or women or, or humans in general face what may seem to be utter hopelessness. But God offers the solution. And so for a little while this morning, we want to notice some of those passages and hopefully be encouraged by what they have to teach us. Let's begin with several personal occurrences of this phrase. And what I mean by that is times when God helped individuals overcome their personal trials. The first example that I believe is found uh, of this phrase is in the book of Genesis in chapter 7. Um, we find there one of the most traumatic scenes in human history. In fact, it was almost the end of human history, uh, the near destruction of all life on earth. You know, that's a, a pretty popular plot for, for Hollywood movies or science fiction novels, the end of the earth or the end of the world. Uh, but if you believe the Bible, of course, this isn't fiction. It really did happen. We know the story. The, the wickedness of man became so great that the Lord regretted that he had ever made man. He was grieved in his heart, according to Genesis 6 and verse 6. So much so that he determined to wipe the slate clean, so to speak. In Genesis 6 and verse 7, God says, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
And so Genesis chapter 7 describes that catastrophe. Listen as I I read parts of of that account. And I'm going to kind of skip several verses here. But beginning with verse 11, it says, On that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Cubits deep. Modern translations estimate that to be somewhere around 22 feet. Imagine that, 22 feet above the highest mountain. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. It's really hard to imagine a more shocking account. Utter destruction. Total despair. Then we turn the page, and like a a light bursting through the darkness... Genesis 8 and verse 1 reads, But God, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And I hope you can see why this little two-word phrase is, is so meaningful here. From the depths of hopelessness, God has the solution. Noah found favor in God's eyes because he was a righteous man. And God saved Noah and his family along with a male and a female of of every living kind, and he replenished the earth once again. And he showed Noah the rainbow as a beautiful sign of his promise to never destroy the earth with water again. The next example of this uh, powerful phrase that we want to notice is found several chapters later in Genesis 31. In fact, it's 12 generations after Noah, and it's in the life of his Great times ten grandson. Great grandson times ten. Jacob. You'll recall that Jacob, uh, after deceptively receiving his father's blessing, which was supposed to belong to his brother Esau, he fled for his life to, to live with his uncle Laban. And in a turn of events that I suppose can be described by poetic justice, uh, after he served Laban for seven years to win the hand of his daughter Rachel, Jacob found himself instead married to her sister Leah. And then Jacob uh, serves another seven years for Rachel. And of course what follows that is a very tumultuous love triangle uh, between Jacob and his two wives, along with the wives' maids, uh, to which at least 12 children are born. In the process, Jacob continues to serve Laban, but at some point he's ready to to set out on his own. And so he strikes a deal with, with his uncle, Uh, He tells him that that he will pick out all the striped and all the spotted sheep and goats, and he will only keep those for himself as as payment for his services. Laban agrees, somehow crossing his fingers, I suppose, because the Bible tells us that he secretly removed all the animals with stripes and spots and gave them to his sons, left Jacob with nothing, basically. Well, through divine providence, Jacob turns the tables on Laban. And when the stronger flocks were ready to breed, he placed striped sticks in front of their watering troughs, which somehow, by miracle, uh, caused them to have striped and spotted uh, offspring. And then when the weaker flocks would breed, he wouldn't put those sticks in front of them. 
and their offspring would be solid. And so Jacob's flocks grew and became stronger and stronger, while Laban's, not so much. Jacob became very prosperous at Laban's expense. And that brings us to Genesis, the 31st chapter. As you can imagine, Laban and his sons are, are not too happy. And in fact, Jacob hears a rumor that Laban's sons are saying, Jacob has taken all that, our, that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. I suspect that they were probably ready to do away, away with Jacob. And so this is where we find these, these two powerful words. In Genesis 31, beginning with verse 4, we read, So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was, and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. Jacob was far from perfect. As we said, we might even consider the, the bad things that happened to him just payback for all the deception that he was guilty of. But God nevertheless protected Jacob, partially due to the promises that he had made to his grandfather Abraham. And I think Jacob probably realized that. In fact, later when he was confronted by Laban, uh, he says in verse 42, If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty-handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. God keeps His promises and He makes sure that His will will, will come into to play. Well, the next occurrence of this phrase that we want to notice is in the life, the life of Jacob's son, one of Jacob's sons, Joseph. Now, Jacob, as we said, might have deserved some of the hardships that, that he faced, but Joseph was bombarded with trouble after trouble, really out of no fault of his own. His own brothers, we know, uh, threw him into a pit and sold him into slavery. In Egypt, he faithfully served the captain of Pharaoh's guards who had bought him, only to be thrown into prison when he wouldn't betray his master's trust and, and lie with Potiphar's wife. And even then, he was a model prisoner, to the point that he was put in charge of all the prisoners. And when he correctly interpreted the dream of the king's cupbearer, that he would be restored to his former office, he begged the cupbearer. He said, remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. As we know, though, the cupbearer forgot all about him. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was betrayed by his master. He was betrayed by those that he helped. If anyone ever had reason to be bitter, it was Joseph. But then things took a turn for the better. After two years, the cupbearer finally did remember Joseph when Pharaoh had a dream himself that, that no one could interpret. And Joseph correctly predicted uh, Pharaoh's dream that there would be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. And Pharaoh made Joseph second in command and put him in charge of storing up food during the good years so that the land could survive the famine. You remember the story. When the famine reached Canaan, Joseph's father, Jacob, uh, sent his brothers to Egypt to buy food. And through several dramatic and, and touching scenes, Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers. And he brings his father and his family to Egypt to live in peace and prosperity. 
However, when Jacob dies, Joseph's brothers become worried. What if Joseph never truly forgave them? What if he was only playing nice, so to speak, for his father's sake? And what if he would now impose his wrath upon them for the despicable things that they had done when he was younger? And so in Genesis, the 50th chapter, they come to him begging for his forgiveness. And in verses 19 and 20, we read Joseph's emotional response. And listen for the phrase that's the focus of our study today. It says, Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. How impressive is it that Joseph could look back at all his troubles and see that God had a plan and a purpose and that God had always been in control. Centuries later, Stephen would repeat this story and this phrase. He said in Acts 7 and verse 9, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Well, we want to notice one more uh, occurrence of this phrase in the life of an Old Testament character, and that is the life of, of David. In 1 Samuel, we find the, the epic story of King Saul searching for David to take his life. How stressful, surely this must have been for David, day after day, to, to be on the run for your life. And, uh, and I think we know that. We know it was stressful to him because he reveals that it was uh, through many of the Psalms that, that he wrote that obviously refer to this period of time and, and describe his distress. But, but time after time, David escaped. And it was because God had plans for him and, and protected him. And so in 1 Samuel 23 and verse 14, we read, And David remained in the wilderness, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. Again, how stressful to be hunted every day, but how comforting to know that God was in control and God was going to protect him. There are probably many more characters that we could notice whose lives were spared or, or drastically changed for the better by God's hand, and, and this, this or similar phrases are, are recorded. But I hope that we've seen enough so that the point uh, here has been made. God is the answer, and God is in control. In even the most desperate, soul-wrenching, terrifying circumstances, God is there and provides hope. Not only in the days of, of old, but today as well. When sickness brings us low, when dangers threaten us, when the shadow of death hangs over us or our loved ones, but God. When we face financial dilemmas, or when our marriage or other relationships are on the brink of failure, when the cares of this world bend us low, but God. When, like Noah, we're surrounded by the ungodly and all seems hopeless and we face certain destruction, but God. When, like Jacob, we've been deceived or wronged by others, but God. When, like Joseph, we are betrayed and we're sold out by others, maybe even our own brethren, but God. And when, like David, it feels like someone has it out for us every day, but God. 
Now, someone might argue here, and, and perhaps um, reasonably so, that God doesn't always save us from these tragedies. People get sick. People are injured or they die. People go bankrupt, go, go bankrupt and they lose everything they own. Marriages fail. People allow despair to, to overcome them. Wickedness, destruction, deception, betrayal, enemies, these all still exist. Going back to the t-shirt, the fear, anxiety, doubt, sin, guilt, burdens, hurt, anger, regret, grief, loss, shame, pain. Do these things not still exist? Well, yes. Has God removed them from the world or does He spare us all from these troubles? No. But that's where we have to, to step back, I think, and take a look at, at the bigger picture. First of all, to be honest, God didn't save every one of His followers from every situation in the Old Testament either. Yes, Noah and his family were saved, but sin still existed. And Noah, in fact, suffered its effects firsthand through the sins of, of his son Ham. Yes, Jacob survived the deceit and the threats of Laban, but he suffered more heartaches, including mourning for his son Joseph for many years. In fact, in some of the quotes of Jacob, you can hear signs of, of severe hopelessness and, and despair and, and possibly even depression. Uh, in Genesis 42 and verse 36, Jacob says, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. Listen, everything is against me. Yeah, Jacob suffered. David was saved from Saul, yes, and he went on to become king. But I think we all know the things that David suffered in life, greatly due to his own sins. The point is, God does providentially, I believe, and sometimes miraculously, I believe, save mankind from disaster. We may never even know those times when God has stepped in and saved us from some danger that maybe we never even saw. But that's not what matters most. Because as we said, sin does still exist. And because we have all sinned, we still suffer from its consequences in this life. And we will ultimately all suffer its curse, that being physical death. And so now, where is the silver lining in all this? I, I've sort of burst the but God bubble, haven't I? I've, I've taken something that was supposed to be positive, it seems, and, and now kind of uh, made it all negative. But what is the, the moment, or the but God moment, I should say, that does matter most? Well, it's when we realize that this life is not the end, and that eternity awaits us. That even if God miraculously spares us in this circumstance or that circumstance in this life, what we really need to be more concerned about is the next life. When we recognize that sin and its effects are something that we never would have and never could have overcome on our own, and we're all condemned to pay its price, but God. That's when we realize that God uh, truly does matter and truly does save us. And so let's notice now some, some but God verses that, that speak to this bigger picture. We've noticed some instances where uh, God protected individuals from physical harm. But more important than physical protection 
is his protection of his followers from spiritual harm. In 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, Paul warns Christians to avoid the mistakes made by Israel in the wilderness. He says, don't be idolaters like they were. Don't commit immorality like they did. Don't put the Lord to the test like they did. Don't grumble as they did. And, and he gives specific examples where they were punished for these sins. Examples that were, as he says, written for our learning. And then Paul writes, beginning in verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as, such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Yes, when God protects us from physical harm, that is such a blessing. And, and it's one I'm sure that we pray for every day to protect us, to protect our loved ones. Um, but how much more important is His spiritual protection? How much more should we pray that He will help us to avoid and escape temptations that could harm our eternal soul and the soul of our loved ones? Besides His protection, we should also be mindful of God's provision the way that He provides and supplies our every need. And this definitely applies to physical needs and physical blessings. As the psalmist uh, reflects so beautifully in Psalm 37 and 25, I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. We pray for God's continued provision for our physical needs, food, clothing, shelter, but how much more should we thank Him for and pray for His continued provision of our spiritual needs? In Philippians, the, the fourth chapter, Paul expresses his gratitude to the Philippian brethren for the gifts that they had sent him, apparently on more than one occasion, especially at a time when no other churches had supported him. And verse 19, Paul says, But God, or but my God, will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, many commentators believe that the word but here really should rather be translated as and. In other words, um, Paul is saying that just like they provided for Paul's physical needs, in return, God will provide for theirs. You gave to me and God will give to you. And I suppose in the immediate context, that does seem to be implied. Paul is talking about funds or money, physical blessings, if you will, that they had sent him. But I also think that we could argue that the word but here is, is correct, that it's meant to show contrast. They provided for Paul's physical needs, but God would provide for their needs above and beyond what Paul might be able to offer in return, that of their spiritual needs. Since Paul uh, is concluding his letter here in, in Philippians, the fourth chapter, it would make sense for him to, to circle back to matters that he had addressed near the beginning of the letter. And in chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul prays for their spiritual needs, things such as good works and love and knowledge and discernment and, and the fruits of righteousness. In fact, notice Paul's insertion here of some key phrases at the end of Philippians 4.19. He says, according to his riches. In other words, on a scale worthy of, of God's wealth. One version says, as lavishly as only God can. Paul also adds, in glory, which can be interpreted a number of ways, but that possibly refers to 
the heavenly realm or the coming age. And so that would definitely refer to spiritual blessings uh, to come. Riches beyond this life, if you will. And then finally, by Christ Jesus, I think that definitely seems to point to blessings that can only be found in Christ. It is through Christ that God will so abundantly supply their every spiritual need. And the same is true for us today. The next but God occurrence that we want to notice speaks of God's love. In Romans 5, beginning with verse 6, Paul writes, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I don't think I'd ever really understood the difference there between a, a righteous person and a good person. But Brother Alan Boniface's uh, commentary on Romans helped me to, to understand here that, that contrast. He explains that the word righteous in verse 7 describes someone who, who does what the law requires, but maybe no more. He acts just on the principle of, of, of justice. He does uh, what the law says, but that doesn't exactly produce feelings of, of endearment in most people. In short, rarely, if ever, would you be willing to die for someone who thought just followed the law. But the word good, on the other hand, describes someone who is more than just a law follower. He is compassionate, and he's devoted to the needs of others. He can be characterized by words such as gentle, meek, generous, kind, loving, merciful. And even so, not many would be willing to give their lives for such a person. Here comes the climactic contrast, though. But God, in His love, was willing to send His Son, and His Son Jesus was willing to die for us even while we were ungodly sinners. Hardly anybody would die for a person that follows the law, which we didn't. We sinned. Maybe somebody might die for someone who is good, which we were not. But God was willing to send His Son when we were sinners. As, Al, as Brother Allen puts it, we weren't even a 40-second cousin to a just man, not to mention a good one. But Jesus died for sinners, for those who were His enemies. And perhaps Jesus said it best Himself in John 3.16, that verse that we all know and love so well. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And as Romans 8, verses 35 through 39 describes, nothing in all creation can separate us from God's love. We can separate ourselves. We can refuse that love, but nothing can separate us from it. Well, finally, the, the last occurrence of the powerful phrase, but God, that we want to notice this morning, and, and perhaps the most significant, is found in Ephesians 2 verse 4. Brother Nate did an excellent job, or an excellent study rather, gave an excellent study on the, the first eight or ten verses of, of this chapter just this past Wednesday night. And, and I couldn't top that if I tried. And so I encourage, I encourage you, uh, if you weren't able to hear it, to, to go back and listen to the recording uh, on our website. But, but in summary, Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 3, Paul describes how we all were once spiritually dead. That is, we were separated from God because of our sin. We walked or we lived following the ways of this world. We ignored eternity. We followed what Paul describes as the prince of the power of the air, 
which is truly a frightening description of Satan. We were children of disobedience. We fulfill the lusts and desires of the flesh and the mind. We were destined for God's wrath. And then Paul, uh, who is masterfully built up to this dramatic contrast, now says in verses 4 and 5, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That image of, of being dead brought to life. That's the perfect comparison of our spiritual state before and after Christ. 1 John 2 and verse 2 describes Christ as the propitiation for our sins and the sins of the whole world. Other verses have, have it as atoning sacrifice. And it refers to uh, reparation or payment for a wrong. Our sins had us destined for eternal death. But Jesus paid the price and in essence He raised us from that death to enjoy eternal life in Him. Obviously not because we deserved it, but by His grace and mercy. Romans 6 and 23 explains that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And because of this, because of God's grace, we don't have to fear physical death. As we mentioned earlier, God may save us from physical disaster at some point or some points in our life, but eventually we will all die. Yet even then, we have hope. And I love what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 49, verse 15, where we find another uh, but God occurrence. He says that the wise must finally die, just like the foolish who have trusted in their riches, leaving all their wealth behind. But the difference is this. For the foolish, the grave, or Sheol, as, as many versions put it, the grave is their eternal home, where they will stay forever. And this verse 15 says, But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. And the NIV there says, He will surely take me to himself. How beautiful is that? What a beautiful comfort the victory of the faithful is. And while we may suffer and struggle in this life with all of its cares, we have this assurance. But God. As Psalm 73 and verse 26 puts it, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If we rely on Him and if we remain faithful to Him, then we have nothing to fear.